Welcome back to Mark's Madness. Yeah, welcome back. We are doing it again. Doing it again. Of course, I set the level. It's hilarious. I like spend 10 minutes setting the levels before I start these uh, because I I don't want to blow them out because I'm a considerate gentleman. And then every time the intro just destroy, like I practice the intro, but then when I do it for real, I still just blow it out every time. Just just absolutely destroy it. It's a good thing we can press this after the fact. Um, (laughs) But that being said, uh, this is Mark. Welcome. This is Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. Uh, This is Nathan. This is David. We don't do that every time, so forgive no, us. We're but you know, every, at the beginning now, that's fancy. we. You know, it's sometimes it's fun to know who's going to be talking before they talk, as opposed to yeah. at the end when they're Who done the hell talking. Was that guy? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? We're not good if at you're this. Starting, never... If you're starting in the middle of page six hundred and eight and wondering <laughs> who are these guys, you've done this wrong. <laughs> oh, you're you're not wrong. You're not wrong. Uh, that being said, we are starting in the page of in the middle of page six hundred and eight. But David, before we start in the middle of page six hundred and eight, yes. anything current eventsy that you would like to talk about? Oh, it has been quite a week of current eventsy stuff. Um, so first and foremost, and this is something very, very important, is as we barrel towards the end of the eviction moratorium. So much as that even prevented most evictions obviously evictions have happened throughout that and people have already been you know homeless or houseless um throughout that time and have been thoroughly attacked you know um with some concessions you know there's been times in say new york city uh in the name of the pandemic where they were putting uh, houseless people in hotel rooms rather than the regular homeless shelters and it was a much nicer life for them um but it was to contain them to stop the spread of the disease so there's been some concessions for that but you know they haven't even seen some of the the, the benefits uh that other people do because you know i mean how do you get some of these these uh stimulus benefits without bank accounts and mailing addresses and, and things like that which some houses people have and some houses people don't yeah. um especially the mailing address <laughs> um and so you know that's been very difficult well as that winds down and we're staring down the barrel of just a flood of of homelessness just being unleashed on the world you're seeing you know explicit criminalization of of uh being houseless and and you know living on sidewalks it's it's all played off in accessibility language like they've ever cared about disabled people and that, that no. police aren't a force of terror on um people who are disabled but they uh um they're doing these laws where it's you know claiming they're blocking sidewalks or whatever you know bullshit right wing talking point they're doing and and i mean these are overtly liberal city councils that are just like yeah you know we're we're just going to make being homeless straight up illegal right um full on attacks uh so that's that's the most pressing thing you know you've seen measures in seattle uh where they have done more intense what they like to call sweeps and we've talked about how that's even dehumanizing these are people's homes and they are being displaced um but you know tent villages are being destroyed um and people's homes and things are being destroyed and people are being shuffled off um to live a more and more difficult life uh so you're seeing that um and you're seeing in you know new york city right they're taking them and sending them back into uh the shelters uh, which people, you know, are saying there's hellish conditions and there's tons and tons of, I mean, you want to see a spot of corruption, you know, these shelters, people get paid six figures to work at these things. And so, you know, someone will 
have paid into it two thousand, three thousand, four thousand, five thousand dollars, and it's like you could just give them regular housing for that if the state's going to sponsor it. And there's empty houses. Why in God's name are are we not doing that? Um, but you know, I mean, the, this is the the game that gets played, right? Yeah. Um, with these nonprofits. And so you're seeing people, I mean, Manhattan actually had, I think, three different protests today. It had the the miners union worried about the coal miners jobs up there. It had the teachers protesting at City Hall steps. And at the same time, it had uh, the, uh, um, uh, what is the homeless defense group that was doing the protest against moving them out of the, the housing? I forget. The, the name you're of the expecting day. me to remember something current events related david oh you have you have aired i'm my sorry friend. i'm sorry but um they were you know on the the steps of city hall and of course being arrested and and uh very roughly um because you know it's never gentle and and being carted off um and so you know i mean this is all happening it's a full-on attack so you see as this eviction moratorium comes to an end as this housing market where every available house is gobbled up by rent prospectors uh, that are basically just protecting their monopoly really right like because if the housing market crashes all of their property value crashes so these big property conglomerates are offering over property value to any homeowner that's selling to buy it right up it is completely shrinking uh, the housing market even though people aren't exactly you know renting with this eviction moratorium uh, being stared down the barrel of or buying up new property except for these big conglomerates and then they're selling it out to people who were you know kicked out of their homes but can afford rent um but mostly like airbnbs and and just protection of their property that's what's kind of causing a this huge giant false high price housing bubble well as you see that and as you see the eviction moratorium coming to an end and there's just going to be this huge outbreak of of homelessness it's going to be met with violence intense violence and it is being telegraphed in la and seattle and new york and all across the country and we have to be ready more than ever to stand up uh, for our, our houseless comrades and to make sure that we secure housing for all. Um, you know, I mean, the, the drum is beat for 5 for 15. We, of course, we totally support that. We are always in, in huge, you know, think there's not enough charge for anti-imperialist causes. Obviously, the big popular thing has been Medicare for all. Wholly support that. Uh, but we really need to focus on housing for all like just as a nation. And that is going to be the next big call if everyone isn't killed or jailed <laughs> um, <laughs> almost immediately. And that yeah. seems to be the effort that, that they're going to that. If again, we talked about so much as fascism is any different than liberalism. Um, what makes fascism different? It's people that want to cling on to the power structures that arise from liberalism in violent ways in the name of those power structures. And they no longer care about, the facade of the free market or anything like that. They just are reactionaries that violently want to uphold those power structures explicitly at all costs. That's why it's so racist. That's why it's so genocidal. Um, and so to the extent that fascism is different than liberalism, and if it is that America hasn't always been fascist, the real gateway to that fascism more than anything isn't Trump, although he very much is, isn't evangelicals, although that's very much true. Uh, it's going to be this violent repression of houselessness as millions of people just burst into that category. Amen. Um, that, I mean, and, and we've, 
I think we've been pretty pretty consistent with that from day one. That that yeah. our our houseless comrades are one um, among the most, if not the most, exploited groups uh, in our community, bar none. Um, there, the amount of the amount of pain and suffering and and just pure degradation that can happen to to a, a houseless comrade without without anyone batting an eye and people just assuming that you know oh well they deserve oh well they must have done something wrong to be in that position with you know just the lack of empathy in our society is is oh how insane. many times have, have we talked about there was that Stanford experiment where uh, the Stanford professor went out and he just asked random people on the street for for money for. I guess it was some profit venture or something. He had an idea for you know, hey, you want to be, you want to sponsor this is a good idea. It'd be great, and people were like, oh yeah, and gave money. And then he went out and panhandled, and and people basically turned up their nose, you know, yeah. uh, because what's he going to spend it on? He doesn't need it. He deserves to be where he is, you know. I mean, this is this is, people sneer down their nose, and I, you want to talk about all all of the power structures that go into. Um, you know, the United States, all of the power structures that are exposed with the class contradiction, uh, from race, uh, to sexuality and gender. That all is deeply exposed when you look at the population of who is, is houseless, who is in need of housing, you know? Um, and again, in addition to that, obviously, you know, securing housing for all those groups goes beyond that. It gets people out of abusive situations and, and, you know, all the like. So housing for all is is an extreme, extreme call that we need. And that's something where, you know, if you want to talk about one thing every socialist country ever has done right, it's easy to go to, oh, you know, look at the health pro- programs, look at the literacy programs. Those are incredible. Those are fantastic. Food security, vital. You can't survive without those things. But the big calling card you see consistently in socialism is housing, is yeah. guaranteed housing. Um, and it makes an immense amount of difference. Amen. Um, moving on from that, uh, the other, I mean, there has been consistently good news out of Peru. Uh, Pedro Castillo, uh, mm-hmm. what was, so again, not taking his presidential salary, he's going to continue taking his teacher salary, which I thought was awesome. Very, very Thomas Sankara of him. Exactly. Um, Cause I was just about to say, didn't Sankara do almost identical, mm-hmm. that, like that exact same thing. Yes. Um, he also but, made a commitment. So he's in, uh, are you familiar with his party's Peru Libre, which is, is kind of how it's very clear that he's a Marxist Leninist because that's the Marxist Leninist party. <laughs> um, and so moderates were hoping that he would appoint someone from another party as like an outreach. Like, look, I'm, I'm, I'm not this, just this partisan guy. We're all in this together. Type. You know, you got to do that reach across the aisle thing or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and he was having none of that. <laughs> he exactly. immediately prime minister appointed is, is from Peru Libre. You know, I mean, this is, he basically the, the, uh, what was it? The, the Royal family of Spain was it the Royal family or just a delegation that went, I think it was the Royal family. And he just basically talked up like, yeah, so we're going to decolonize. Spain's horrible and, and fucked up this whole country, and, and we're going to stand for the indigenous population, like right to their faces. And aren't uh, they going to turn the uh, aren't they going to turn the presidential mansion into a museum yes, on col- of, of colonialism? Of colonialism, and this is all announced as as the Spanish royal family is there. So, I mean, again, you want to draw parallels to uh, African revolutionaries? That's very Patrice Lumumba. Yeah. Um, right there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, good things. And this was all a worry because, you know, the United States is all about backing these 
color revs and, and declaring fraud at every election they lose. And this one was tight and it was contested and it was one of their little babies. You know, I mean, Fujimori was, of course, Fujimori's daughter in the U.S. backed um, him in in the 90s or was it the 80s. No, it was the 90s. He was the 90s. Um, you know, so, I mean, this this was very much an American uh, pet project. And they were calling, you know, um, fraud. And then Blinken, of all people, reached out and was like, yeah, no, it's it's not fraudulent. You know, I, of course, most of Western reaction was already on board with that for him. So it was fine. And it was being combated legally through the electoral thing. And it was a tight contest. But he wasn't banging the drum right of it and so it was like oh crap is this gonna kind of like have some shades of Lennon moreno where they're gonna try to, to to turn face but no there's none of that pedro castillo is is turning out to be exactly who he said he was yes. and that's a very 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 good thing to see an amazingly positive thing to see and i uh greatly dread the coup that we'll be talking about in looks at oh, watch God. six months <laughs> give it what six months i hope not again you know i mean this is going to be up to how satisfied people are and how well he puts power in the hands of indigenous people um i think i think honestly as much as it is great symbolically and just long term to turn that palace into a museum on colonialism uh that's also kind of i can't think of the word uh uh, practically smart um smart Uh, move We've done this. We've we you've literally looked for this word. I think last episode, yeah, uh, tactical, <laughs> something like that. Good, uh, like a good tactical move, right? Um, there, there's a word for that. It's 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 much more polite than tactical, but you get what I'm saying. Um, but but it's it's just a good move tactically because that he's not surrounding himself in the traditional setting where all of the colonial structures and peoples and things are that doesn't mean his police force because he's in a different physical building will all of a sudden be entirely indigenous you know i mean they're going to have to change the power structures there to fit that but he's already talking or he's already talked about you know a new constitution right he's immediately not going in that that palace he's guarding himself against a coup in very smart ways that are not as explicitly visible as appointed X and X bodyguards and, you know, or, or hold up in a, a, a little, you know, safe house or something like that. But it's, it's more along those lines than, than meets the eye, which I think is very smart of him. Cause I think he's very worried about a coup. Yeah. Um, um and oh, then of yeah, course, no, Oh, I was going to say, and then of course, across, you know, Latin America, you're seeing other uprisings, you know, you're, you're seeing people push back in, in El Salvador, um, which has been a colonial stronghold for a long time. Uh, you're seeing people push back, indigenous group push back in Guatemala. And this is, of course, in solidarity with Cuba, with Nicaragua. You know, I mean, these are our, and you're not seeing the coverage of this because it's in solidarity no. with Cuba and with Nicaragua, Venezuela. Um, but you are seeing, you know, huge waves of indigenous movements in Central and South America pushing back i mean we talked about the general strike in colombia and i haven't i haven't heard news on that in a little bit i have to check on it but as that's been you know firing on and and not really covered by american news as cuba has stood up to this this color rev effort um even with all the turmoil of of the u.s you know reinvigorating their their power in haiti um even with you know all of the u.s color rev attempts 
um, not only you seeing, you know, the election wins of, of Castillo and, and things like that, but you were also seeing these huge indigenous movements rising in, in these Central and South American countries. And so it's, it's, it's a wave of uprisings that you're not even seeing news about in the media. Um, but these are organic uprisings, and you could tell, you know, these don't seem well-funded. They don't have sudden new shiny uniforms with white helmets with green crosses and SOS hashtags and plastered across all of American media. You know, these are seldom talked about, and they're people with sticks and guns and 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 shit like that, wearing regular clothes or traditional, you know, indigenous garbs or, or things like that. You know, I mean, these are, are organic uh, people's uprisings and so you were seeing a huge huge at least threat to transfer to people's power all across the continent that has been dominated by the monroe doctor exactly and that's it, it's it is very encouraging and it's very in, it's very heartening to see this wave coming um from south america and and everything south of of the United States, it is it is encouraging, and it is something mm-hmm. I I'm very happy to see. Um, I just very much. This is one of those times where I want you know it, there was that tweet going around the other day where where someone was like, oh, tankies talk about the CIA like something talks about something. Oh, yeah. I don't remember what it was, but it was basically dunking on on you know Marxist Leninists for. They're very justifiable, in my opinion, apprehension of the CIA well, yeah, I mean, and the things off, it does what do around you the think world. The CIA does. And Second off, look at what the CIA has been documented doing, and see how much they don't release to the public or cover up because it's in their interest. They're an intelligence agency. Like, what the hell do you think they do? Exactly, um, and that. <sighs> I just very much I part of me is very scared for for what could what what are the yes. ramifications of this? What are the and and I don't think that any of the leaders of these movements are I I'm not trying to say like I'm I see something they don't like obviously they must they, yeah, they know I mean, the dangers of what they're doing and the the inherent riskiness mm-hmm. of being a leftist in the American sphere, you know, the United States' sphere of influence. Um it's just very I'm just holding my breath, hoping, and again, looking for the signs and looking for things where you can you can spot well, attempted places well, I mean, to undermine but, but this at, kind of stuff. Look at that, you know, for example, in Colombia, right? And and I've heard rumors that like FARC mm-hmm. has taken credit for some political assassinations in Colombia, and it was like, oh shit, FARC's back! It's awesome. Um, and for people that don't know, FARC was the explicitly uh, communist, indigenous-led uh, militant group that had fought the right-wingers and drug lords in the Fifty Years' War, and then basically dissolved, largely because there was an agreement between liberals and and uh, who you know largely sided with with uh, FARC on, on many things. I mean, you know, they were a moderate force, or most of the population. Um, but we're kind of caught in this war. They said, okay, we'll give up on this war and we'll totally give in to right wingers. It's just illegal to, to be armed and, and be communist. Um, but it's not illegal to be like liberal or anything anymore, right? Because the government was against that. And then it's like, oh, okay, cool. And it's like, wait, you just threw all of them, you know, under the bus. And essentially it was giving up your arms. And then people that, you know, were armed before were getting killed anyway by the government. There was no ceasing in the ceasefire because, of course, there wasn't. 
Um, so it's it's basically give up and die or fight back and possibly die, possibly win. Of course, they're going to pick fighting back. And these kind of things are, are things that pick up and gain movement and they they ebb and they flow and they're very violent and there's an immense amount of danger. But for the people in the groups that are encouraged to be these types of revolutionaries or as soon as you take a step in the revolutionary direction and, and you're considered any kind of threat, you're already staring down the barrel of life and, and death. And your way out is to gain power, to win. And so, of course, people uh, feel like, you know, they they feel worthwhile to this risk. And it's good news that we are seeing these these uprisings take power. It means they're not being absolutely crushed. So, yeah, I mean, you should be scared of what the CIA is going to do, but you should be scared from a tactical sense, not from a nihilistic sense. Um and, uh, yeah. you know, and that that's important, too, all over the world. I mean, I, again, you know, something that, that saw good news is uh, the uh, Tigran uh, People's Liberation Front kind of lost power a couple years ago. And, and that sounds um, like a super, you know, like uh, even Maoist at, or, or Marxist-Leninist group, right, uh, from, from Tigray in, in Ethiopia. And Ethiopia is an old, old, I mean, people forget the Horn of Africa used to be like, one of the wealthiest places in the world. Like trade routes did not really run. Everybody thinks of the trade routes as like through the Mediterranean and then across the ocean and Europe dominating trade routes before colonialism. But trade routes, the Indian Ocean was like the center of world trade for centuries, right? I mean, Asia and Africa um, traded with each other just an immense amount. And we don't get that in, in our Western history. So the Horn of Africa being the middlemen to a lot of this trading was incredibly rich and and ethiopia was a huge empire there right and and a lot of those countries around there from like you know uh djibouti to eritrea um were, were very wealthy but they didn't amass this kind of colonial power right it wasn't it wasn't appealing to them the way it was to europe and that's a big part of why say you know france uh so deeply colonized the horn of africa and great britain built uh, the Suez Canal in, in Egypt and took a stronghold of Egypt and why the British Empire was so centered around like trade choke points to, to kind of dominate and kill this off. Um, so Ethiopia has been long, you know, colonized. Um, there was a few decades where it had a socialist government largely backed uh, by the Soviet Union uh, where things uh, went well for them. And it was about the only time that most of the ethnic groups, the conflicts tried to be resolved. Uh, but much like, you know, Burma, uh, Malaysia or um, Burma, Myanmar, whatever you want to call it, you know, these weren't fully resolved. The, the socialist government hadn't been there for a long time, and the dominant ethnic group was the one that had seized socialist power. Um, and so, you know, I mean, a lot of these these groups like Tigrans uh, weren't necessarily supportive of this. So when this dissolved in 1991, uh, the Tigran People's Liberation Front, a supposedly Maoist group, was suddenly very liberal and Western-backed. And it was basically a stronghold U.S. puppet in Ethiopia. Well, they fell out of power a couple years ago. And now, for the first time in a while, because um, there's been a hard border <laughs> on... Uh, Eritrea and Ethiopia, that's that's kind of you know laxing back, right? They're they're building um, peace with Eritrea, who's the one country in the Horn of Africa that's kind of pushed back against Africom, which does not make the United States happy after they uh, you know established quote unquote South Sudan in 2011, and and God, that would be a longer discussion than than even Yugoslavia was, but <laughs> that that. That's a big, deep, historic mess. Uh, but think of South Sudan like South Korea or South Vietnam, except never fully formed and more of a NGO 
gold rush blitz thing than than Myanmar Burma. It's a total mess there. But obviously, the Horn of Africa has a huge interest to in the United States. Well, Tigray is the region kind of north, right by uh, the western half of that border with Eritrea. And suddenly, this power that was really good to the U.S., this other power took over Ethiopia and wasn't really against the U.S., wasn't pro or, or, or anti-Western, um, but was getting close with Eritrea. And all of a sudden, this group that was in power, that happens to border half of Eritrea's border, has violently taken back, you know, their, their position and is going for a civil war. And, and, you know, so again, I mean, it's, it's important to realize that the forces of reaction, will do everything to divide us up like that. You know, I mean, they, they will chunk it out. Balkanization is, is a huge technique. Um, and we obviously see how in American history, in this book, you know, how they've turned, you know, white labor and white working class against, you know, the black uh, working class as soon as they were liberated from slavery. They're always trying to divide us up geographically, ethnically, however they can to undermine us. And so we should be afraid of the forces of reaction. We should be afraid of the CIA. We should be afraid of all these divisions it creates. And it is up to whatever group that has been empowered to reach across, not the oppressed group, to reach for that unity. Because the oppressed group is the one that needs that unity and cannot be set behind in their liberation goals. Um, but we should be on the lookout of, of all those forces of reaction and destruction and, and wreckage at this time. All of that said, there seems to be, at least in the Western Hemisphere, if not globally, a tide of turning left, which is good because in the global north there's been a tide of fascism, and certainly the world needs a turn to the left. And so I would say on the whole, be, be scared, be worried, and, uh, and realize too that when we're talking about these other countries, we're talking about it in the sense of debunking lies and extending our solidarity. Beyond that, it's cheerleading judging i just knowing history i you know it's important about solidarity and 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 standing up for for them and you know i mean any any resources you can help with um but there is good news out there and unsurprisingly the good news comes from revolutionaries in the global south as it always does that being said it's been almost half an hour uh and so we should probably, because I did make some bold commitments in the Discord server that we would be oh, done with this book in 10 no. weeks, start. I, uh, I, may have, I may have bit off more than I could chew, but I was doing the math, and I'm like, we can absolutely sure. do this in 10 weeks. Sure, why we not? We can absolutely do this. Barring an actual revolution that we have to cover, we'll be okay. Um, and little did I know we were going to spend half an hour uh, discussing <laughs> Latin America to begin this section, but that is our want. Uh, starting three paragraphs down on page 608 of Black Reconstruction in America, chapter 14, these desperately feared the rise of black labor to a position which might equal and even well, surpass I, the poor I, I whites. I do want to say, just to set us this back, was shown there, was, there was three points three was a capital labor minor company there was three facts that complicated things so there's fact one fact two and now we're on um fact three yes these desperately fa- you're listening to all of these in order and if not go back <laughs> and listen to the last least. episode and then yeah. get caught up and then come back 
These desperately feared the rise of black labor to a position which might equal and even surpass the poor whites. This was shown in the voting in Alabama under Johnson's reconstruction, where the poor white counties went solidly against the black belt on several occasions. And it was also shown in the bitter opposition to the counting of black folk as a basis of representation. If the whole population was to be counted as a basis of representation, then after the war, as before, the Black Belt and its capitalistic dictators were going to dominate white labor, and it was for this reason that the poor whites long fought to exclude the Negro in apportioning the political power of the state, and after Reconstruction united in disenfranchising him. When the Negro received the right to vote and had to be counted, there arose a desperate effort on the part of the poor whites to keep the planters from controlling the Negro vote by their economic power. Sometimes this effort took the crude method of driving black labor off the plantations and intimidating in various ways. Sometimes it took the form of trying to lead black labor through demagogues like Honeycutt in Virginia. And all the time in the background was the feeling that unless the planters united with the poor whites in a solid racial phalanx against the black voters, anarchy and destruction were preferable to the economic rise of the Negro. How this interpretate how this interaction of former land monopolists, white peasant and Negro peasant would have worked itself out if uncomplicated by other interests is a question. But it seems almost inevitable that division would have had taken had to take place along economic rather than racial lines, and that the planner capitalists reinforcing themselves with recruits from a poor white petty bourgeois would have organized to control white and black labor endowed with universal suffrage along the same lines that allowed capital in the north to control native white labor and new immigrants. There entered, however, the small northern investor, usually inaccurately comprehended under the term carpetbagger, a phrase too vague for our use, but too much used to discard. Yeah. He used that a lot over the last, like, five or seven chapters, give or take. I feel like you can't just diss it now, Du Bois. You've been talking about carpetbaggers and scalawags left, right, and fucking center. Because that was historical documentation, deep quoting, and now he's laying out the theory but yeah, he we said carpetbagger a lot. <laughs> we said carpetbagger a fucking lot. Uh, when the war ended, there were large numbers of northern soldiers and officers in the south. There were civilian agents of the government, and there were other northerners who looked toward the south as a place of economic rebirth and investment. There was nothing extraordinary about there was nothing extraordinary in this. Thousands upon thousands of Southerners had come into the North and had been welcomed to its freedom and opportunities. While this migration to the South had come mainly in time of war, with the resultant war hatred and bitterness, still its main reason was economic. Men with smaller or larger amounts of capital and many with no capital proposed to invest in land and free labor in the South at a time when the great staples of Southern agriculture were abnormally high and in wide demand throughout the world. These men, so far as they were investing capitalists, and most of them were, proposed to build up in the South the same kind of capitalistic democracy based on universal suffrage to which they had been used in the North. They were going to trade with free black labor and white labor and yield to it the amount of consideration that economic share of the product which they would naturally have to yield in order to keep their dictatorship and yet get profit for themselves. If now David? the northern capitalist and southern planter class had been united into one new capitalistic class, their only problem would have been to deal with the, a new laboring class composed of blacks and whites and to admit to their ranks those of either class who had or could get any amount of new capital. But both capitalists and laborers were split in two. 
There was hatred and jealousy in the ranks of this new prospective capitalist class, and race prejudice and fear in the ranks of the laborers. And the new capitalistic class, the hatred of the planters for northerners, who apparently were planning to add to the conquests of war new conquests of economic power, was naturally intense. It was the same power of northern capital which in southern minds caused civil war. The new northern capitalists, on the other hand, could not understand why they should not be welcomed as investors without sentiment, in a region where investment of new capital was sadly needed, and and why this should not be accompanied by the same attitude toward labor which capital must take throughout the world if it were going to maintain its mastery. Thirdly, the poor whites began a desperate and almost panic-stricken attempt to force themselves into the situation, either as allies of the old planter class, which had for them the greatest contempt, or allies of the carpetbagger capitalists against whom they had just been fighting in the ranks of the army, and whose attitude towards black labor they did not understand and feared, or even as allies of black labor, which they might use as a club against both planter and capitalist. The ensuing turmoil in the South was a fight of these three pretenders to economic power over the capitalistic state, and it also was further complicated by the fact that the federal military dictatorship was in the hands of northern capitalists and northern social workers. There ensued a fierce fight for mastery characterized by widespread graft, corruption, and violence. For what responsibility did any of these parties have to a state they did not own? And the greater the failure of the government throughout any of the contenders, the more it justified radical change. When the planter class moved toward black labor, its leaders made demands which the planters would not meet, namely demands for land, education, and at the expense of social uplift. These demands of black labor might have been modified if he had not found that they were easily promised and partially fulfilled by the carpetbag capitalists. He therefore turned to the carpetbagger for leadership, and through him was given education and at least the possibility of buying land. The poor white could try to compete with the carpetbag capitalists in leadership and demagoguery over the Negroes, or he could seek alliance with the planter because the planter's property was bearing the main cost of the new educational social program, or by sabotage he could seek to sink the government in anarchy. Small wonder that the ensuing graft, stealing, and renewal of civil war was widely misunderstood. But the very last place where the blame for the situation could, by the wildest imagination, be placed was upon the newly enfranchised black labor. What the Negro needed, and what he desperately sought, was leadership in knowledge and industry. In knowledge, he wanted through his own irresponsible demand. No, irrepressible. Goodness, that was, that's a different word. <laughs> that does change the knowledge tone he wanted a little bit. Irrepressible demand for education to become an intelligent citizen and a start towards this he received through the splendid and unselfish cooperation of northern social workers connected with the federal dictatorship and through their allies, the teachers who came down to man the Freedmen's Bureau schools. By straining his political power to the utmost, the Negro voter got a public school system and got it because that was one clear object which he understood and which no bribery or chicanery could in seduce him from advocating and insisting upon in season and out so basically i mean we're talking about this is this is a weird meshing of classes right because there was already the immense racial prejudice of the poor whites and it talked about it above in this chapter about how a lot of the poor whites were poor they were working class uh, but they were the managers and, and things of containing and controlling slaves, so they still had a class interest in repressing them, and they still had an interest in dehumanizing them and thinking they were above them. 
but additionally, just to complicate it, just as they could form this labor alliance and find this labor alliance with the newly freed black labor, and just as it should be against capital and property in totality, property kind of had this faux rivalry, again, very much like the two political parties now, right? We think of, of the Republicans like the planter class and the Democrats like Northern Capital. Neither interest is in, is, is in your interest. In fact, it's really the same. But they're squabbling with each other and people are going to find alliance with one or the other because that's where they see power. That's where they see any good anything to align with. And so, you know, the, the freed black people had nowhere to turn. They couldn't turn to the planters, and when they tried to turn to poor whites, they were partially rejected. And even as the alliance would wind up forming from conditions before that happened, there was nothing to give them. So they essentially had to turn to Northern Capital, who brought money, who brought the social programs, who brought Reconstruction down. And then when there was this feeling of, of, of traitorousness and, of course, you know, uh, among all the whites of the South, like, hey, you came here and instigated this war. And they kind of blamed Northern Capital the whole time, right? Um then they see the black people aligning with that, and that just further strengthened and ossified their alliance with the planters. And so what you wind up with is a fully white alliance of planters and poor whites um, in combat with Northern Capital, and then a fully capital alliance uh, between planters and and these weird rival, you know, quote-unquote carpetbaggers from the North against labor – and who's left stranded in both situations is black labor, is the newly freed slaves. And so it's not their fault. They were just trying to get anything they could out of a situation where they deserved liberation. They deserved wealth. And they, I mean, they built all the wealth in that land and they had just been freed. They were the victors of the war. Very truly, they took up the arms. And instead, they got screwed over in the entire situation from this weird glob of semi-rivalry groups that, that couldn't even find their own class alliances. Amen. On the other hand, in economic leadership, in the whole question of work and wage, he was almost entirely at sea. His higher schools, based on New England capitalism and individualism, gave little training for an economic battle just dawning in the world, and far from the conception of leaders in Southern industry. Even his later industrial schools were tied hand and foot to triumphant capitalism unhampered by a labor vote. He had then but one clear economic ideal, and that was his demand for land, his demand that the great plantations be subdivided and given to him as his right. This was perfectly fair and naturally and, and a blah, 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 blah. this was a perfectly fair and natural demand and ought to have been an integral part of emancipation to emancipate four million laborers whose labor had been owned and separate from them from the land which they had worked for nearly two and a half centuries was an operation such as no modern country had for a moment attempted or contemplated. The German and English and French serf, the Italian and Russian serf, were on emancipation, given definite rights in the land. Only the American Negro slave was emancipated without such rights, and in the end, this spelled for him the continuation of slavery. Beyond this demand for land, economic leadership for the Negro failed. He appealed to his former master, the best of the planters, those who in slavery days had occupied a patriarchal position toward their slaves, were besieged not only by their former slaves, but by others for advice and leadership. If they had wished, they could have held the Negro vote in the palm of their hands. The Negroes would have followed them implicitly, and it was this that poor whites from Andrew Johnson down feared. I do love 
Dude, this Johnson poor down. whites yeah. from Andrew not, Johnson not down. let him separate from that group because that's that how is he screwed a, everyone that, over. Uh-huh. That is exactly who he is. But they forgot that the planters were stopped from this program by their own lack of capital, by the new and confiscatory taxation with with which the Negro demands entailed, even under the most frugal and honest administration, by their own singular lack of knowledge of the methods of capitalistic democracy throughout the world, which was based on the very concessions to labor which they would not conceive. They kept insisting on hard, regular toil, vague and irregular wages, and no exercise of political power. All this in a day when labor the world over demanded shorter hours, a definite high-wage contract, and the right to vote. To this attitude of the planters must have been added the bitter jealousy, not only of the worst and most vicious and selfish of the planters, but of the poor whites. And when there was added to this the fact that they themselves were being supplanted as advisors of Negroes by the new white northern capitalist, willing to grant labor's demands at the expense of the state, they, in most cases, utterly refused to lead Negro labor, and thus drew through the Negroes back on the carpetbag capitalists for advice and leadership. Thither, too, Negroes were attracted to a trust that naturally grew out of the fact that these people represented their emancipation. They represented Abraham Lincoln and his government, and Negroes were naturally inclined to do anything that this leadership told them to, even when the advice was dishonest and unwise. Thus were the freedmen landed in pietist contradiction and difficulty. The Negroes' own black leadership was naturally of many sorts. Some, like the whites, were petty bourgeois, seeking to climb to wealth. Others were educated men, helping to develop a new nation without regard to mere race lines. While a third group were idealists, trying to uplift the Negro race and put them on par with the whites. But how was this to be accomplished? In the minds of very few of them, there was any clear and distinct plan for the development of a laboring class into a position of power and mastery over the modern industrial state. And in this lack of vision, they were not singular in America. Where else in the land, even among labor leaders, was there any such fixed and definite program of action? David? The fight for the domination of the new form of state, which Reconstruction was building, took the direction of using the income for new forms of state expenses, and for that, public investment for private profit for private profit <laughs> was a widespread custom in the North. The South had entered only to a small extent into such schemes and tended to regard them as outside the function of the state. Even the forms of expenditure for education and the help of indigents. That's all I've got. Okay, sure. Uh, were kinds of expenditure to which the South taxpayers had not been used and which, for the most part, they did not believe. There were constant- Indigents. In- Indigent. What does that mean? Indigent means like, uh, a, what is the word? Uh, like poor, like without, without home. Oh, okay, okay. Um, not indignant, not like indignant, but yeah. indigent. Okay. They were yeah. Con- okay. There were consequently fierce outcries against the waste of such expenditures. When in addition to that, there came widespread and deliberate investment of public funds in railroads and corporations where the profits went to speculators and grafters, the protest of landed property was intensified. 
The results of this form of stealing bore hard upon the impoverished landholder and were particularly detestable to him because monopolizing the government before the war, he had largely escaped taxation and had tried to transfer it to the shoulders of the small businessman. Now the small businessman, reinforced by the carpetbagger and black voter, was returning it to the landholder. Sucks to be you. Suck, suck, suck. (laughs) Dish it out, but can't take it, I guess. Um... Assessments were increased, and the gradual disestablishment of the landed aristocracy became imminent. Here is the crux of the matter. It was this large and, for the day and circumstances, overwhelming loss that lay at the bottom of the extraordinary changes of extravagance and stealing that characterized the Reconstruction controversy. For had there been no further loss and no necessity nor effort to increase the customary taxation of the past, the planter would have felt hurt to his heart by the disappearance of the bulk of his capital. But when this was added, a new taxation for uplifting Negroes and enriching Northerners, he raised his protest to a shriek and bitterness. Again, I don't think it would have changed the total conditions um, or the bitterness, but the problem there is the end enriching Northerners. So as much as we quip the whole dish it out and can't take it, it's still not a good thing to be sending this to capitalists, which should be for public good. No, exactly. Uh, when we try to get to the details of the southern states' debts after the war and during Reconstruction, we are faced by the fact that there is no agreement among authorities. The reasons for this are several. First, what is a debt? Is it the amount which a state actually owes? <laughs> or is it the amount... I feel like we're getting very philosophical here when it comes to money. I mean, but okay... What is debt? <laughs> this is... <laughs> This isn't like, you know, hit the ball. You're like, what is debt, man? You know, this is talking about like, what is state debt, right? What is no, that? No, this mean? is a Harvard man hitting the ball yeah. going, what is debt, man? But this is, this is like, what is state debt? You know, who cares if we have 40 gajillion trillion dollars in, in state debt? And it's not that it doesn't matter, but what concretely is it? It's kind of weird because the voice is a Marxist, which is a, a better way to, to look at this, and I think that existed, I, th- I think modern, mo- modern monetary theory existed after him, and, and I don't think that's where he's going with this, but that is kind of a, this this line of questioning kind of lines up with that in a way. It's, it's, it's really weird. Um, but first, what is a debt? Is it the amount to which a state actually owes, or is it the amount for which a state may become liable in the future by reason of present commitments and promises? Is in this latter case, for how much does it actually become liable? Right? So, like, if you compound interest and you can't pay this off in the next three years, is it how much three years will cost you, or is it how much you owe right now? That's a reasonable thing to ask, right? A careful examination of such facts as seem established shows that the increase of debts under Reconstruction regime was not large. In 11 southern states, there was a little over $100 million of debt in 1860, which rose to $222 million on account of war. When the Confederate debt was repudiated, the recognized debts in 1865 stood at $156 million dollars. To this should be added a certain railroad liabilities of Alabama, which brings the total debt at the beginning of Reconstruction to $175 million. In 1871, this debt was increased nearly 100% to $305 million, but $100 million of this debt consisted in contingent and re- prospective liabilities due to the issue of railway bonds, which confuses the whole issue with regard to Reconstruction debts. This whole increase of debt during 1860 to 1871 amounted apparently to less than 100%. 
What now did this increase of debt due to the railway bonds mean? It meant that Southern and Northern men, Republicans and Democrats, had united to put the credit of the state back of their railway investments. The only way in which nine-tenths of Negro voters came into this matter was as their representatives were bribed by both parties to support this legislation for private profit. Again, as much as things change, as much as they stay the same. They stay the same. Such bribery undoubtedly was widespread, but it was widespread not only among Negro voters, but among white voters and among all voters of the United States and among members of all legislatures and members of Congress. It could hardly be argued that in this respect, new and largely ignorant Negro voters should show a higher public morality than the rest of the country. Again, you know, racism is is also the, the perfect victim syndrome, right? It's not that we should, you know, there's so many times where we want to correct the record, like, you know, in bigotry groups that are marginalized get trashed with these stereotypes and these false, you know, fears about them, right? And so you want to celebrate what they do right, but then also they shouldn't have to be better than the average person to be human, right? Exactly. And then there's this expectation for them to be better to have any rights, and that's here, right? They had to be incorruptible, supposedly, more than the average voter, or they didn't deserve to vote. Kiss my ass. Exactly. On the other hand, the wrath of the landholders against this increase in debt was the wrath of agrarian capitalists against the new industrialism. And yet they were unable to prosecute those who sold who stole the state's money through the issue of railway bonds because there were too many Southern people and Southern people of prominence involved. This was shown in Northern Carolina where despite the extravagant investment in railways, the hope of wide immigration and rapid development was disappointed and the landholders put the commercialists out of power, but they did not dare prosecute them. This is, this is the, the, uh, uh, bailouts of 2009, like, Pre two thousand eight. No, exactly. This was all hundred percent when we just bailed out everyone that it possibly could have been culpable in two thousand eight, and then just pretended like nothing else had happened. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's exactly that. Yeah. Um, in Mississippi, on the other hand, where the where the Negro was as powerful as in any state, there was no increase of debt because from the first, the landholders and Negroes refused to loan to the credit of the state and the railroads. Okay, so. This is actually we were we were joking around about this being esoteric, and then we were joking around about um, this being kind of mono, modern monetary. But no, it's very concrete. He's saying, "Hey, there's supposed to be all this debt that Reconstruction brought about, and it ruined everything. And in spite of the fact they're building out schools, they less than doubled the debt. These huge numbers was was just a a, a correlation, right? A bad correlation based on the corruption of the railroad prospecting that happened to happen at the same time." Exactly. Over 150 million. Uh, no, if the money had been raised by taxes, had been spent carefully and honestly upon legitimate and necessary matters of restoration and government, the increase is not unreasonable. Or in other words, there is nothing on the face of the figures that proves unusual theft. Over 150 millions of this debt was repudiated by the reactionary governments, which came into office after 1876. John F. Hume claims that to this should be added $120 million of debts repudiated before the Civil War, showing that the South was not un- unused to dealing with this way of with borrowed funds. This indebtedness was this indebtedness must also be interpreted by considering the price of gold. 
South Carolina's debt of $22 million in 1871 was made when paper money was not at 70 and was therefore equivalent to $15.5 million in 1860. Indeed, the curve of the price of gold explains, to some extent, the curve of the alleged extravagance. Again, bad correlation, bad numbers, lack of context. This is like having the conversation from two years ago, where, mm-hmm. or maybe it was last year, where China got rid of poverty and everyone was like, well, it just means a, a dollar a day or something like And it's like, no, that's that's not what it means at all. You're not factoring in cost of living. You're not factoring in the, the standard of living, what's provided by the government, the fact that they made a higher number than was expected and already adjusted for inflation, you know, and um, so you can game these numbers all you want. This is, it's, it's basic propaganda. This is the cursory propaganda we live with today. Um, yeah. And oh, nope, nope don't okay. you dare. Because that is the end of this week's episode of Mark's Madness. Yeah, you I saw you getting all squirrely <laughs> trying to trying to go off again and start reading. Uh no, none of that. Uh this has been Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. Um thank you all for tuning in this week. Again, we will uh I'm I'm gonna put the number on it right now. We're ten episodes away from finishing this goddamn book. <laughs> You've already added uh, an episode. I'm good. No, I didn't. I said 10 weeks. I originally said 10 weeks. We are 10 weeks away from finishing this goddamn book. Okay. Um, and we will finish it within those 10 weeks, come hell or high water. Um, if that means we have to produce extra episodes in a week to get there, darn it, we're going to do it. So that means we got to do a 40-page episode marathon. God damn it, we're going to do it. If, we, if the last episode of Black Reconstruction is five hours long... So goddamn be it. In ten weeks from now, that's 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 one. It's ten uh, weeks, Nathan. It's two, three, four, five, six. You can count to ten. We got it. Seven, eight, nine, ten. That would put us on October the seventh. Oh, so October the thirteenth. October the 13th, you all should be listening to the last episode of Black Reconstruction in America. One way or a fucking another, you will be listening to the last episode of Black Reconstruction in America come October 13th. If that requires multiple hour episodes, that's what we're going to do. I but feel God like, damn it. I feel like Nathan is prospecting railroads with, with these uh, episode promises, and I don't like it. I don't. At some point, we have to set the bar and then go meet it. All right. We got no other choice. Five year plan. We're doing this. <laughs> Uh, we are getting to our quota one way or another. Now we, we got to do, do it, it in less than 10. Now we got to do it in like eight so we can say two plus two equals five. Perfect. I'm fine with that. Whatever we got to do to get to this quota, but we're going to get to this quota because on October 13th, we will be transitioning to a new book. Uh, what book are we transitioning to, David? Uh, well, we got two things. We're going to be doing Neocolonialism by Kwame Nkrumah as our main book, and we're also going to be doing boom, boom, boom. a collaboration of uh, Redskins White Masks. But that being said, this is Mark's Madness Pod, and there are a number of different ways you can reach out to us. The first of which is you can reach out to us on email. That is marksmadnesspod at gmail.com. The next way you can reach out to us is on Twitter. We're at marksmadnesspod on Twitter. Uh, you can, our DMs are open. You can get us in there and not have to hit up the timeline. 
Uh, if you would prefer a more intimate one-on-one sort of uh, interaction where we're all kind of talking together and, and chatting, uh, Discord is the best place for that. And our Discord server is the Mark's Madness Discord. Uh, our link is in our Twitter bio. If you don't want to go to Twitter, you can email us and we'll send it to you. Uh, our our Discord is a g- delightful place that I am super, super proud to be a part of and, and technically leader of i guess although weirdly enough um i take the anarchist stance there there are no leaders in there it's just all of us (laughs) doing our own thing there's no vanguard party of discord we're hanging out that's not true there's a mod team and we're the vanguard party but that being said we talk about final fantasy 14 we talk about other things we hang out we talk about whatever is going on and it's just a good place to have camaraderie uh and have another group of people that think like you do that just want to talk when things are going shitty throughout your work day uh, that being said, we do do a uh, disclaimer at the end of all these episodes, and David does that because I couldn't if I wanted to. David! You're always so nice to me. Um, obviously, me and Nathan started this because we were sitting down and we were reading Capital, and uh, he just came up to me and was like, I need to read this book. You've read it. Help me read it. And that's a book you want to read in a group and have discussion, talk about context, get feedback. It's going to help you remember it, understand the concepts better. And so we thought, well, this reading group's a little small, and we know how to record a podcast. Um, so let's just record it and see what happens. And after we recorded a bunch of it, we went, yeah, we could do this. We could share this with other people. And since then, we've been sharing this with you. Welcome. We're so happy to have you reading with us. Um, and so hopefully our primary goal in that is that you're out in a party, out in some kind of organization, and you guys have some kind of a reading group or political uh, education, and you're reading these books as well. And we can be another voice in that reading group. We can be another point of context, input, tying back to your lives, current events, things like that. Um, save for that, save that your reading group or political education group is reading something more concise or a different work that's more applicable to what you're organizing or just happens to be on a different work. And you're reading this on your own. Hopefully we can be that reading or discussion group that, that we recorded all this for. And save for that. Save it's a book either we summarize more like we were doing at the time with Capital or a book where we're more of an enhanced ebook like this book that we're reading right now. Whatever we can do to make these works more accessible to you because we want to make sure that this theory is out there guiding your actions because when you take this theory and you engage it into actions, it becomes praxis. It becomes political education in action. And without that praxis, this theory is completely useless. They are, go hand in hand. They are tied at the hip. Amen, as always. That being said, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we will talk to you all next week. Bye. 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 Bye.